I'm Anthony Penn. Welcome to Pen Drop. Our guest today is Nadia Dutchen. She's executive director of the American Humanist Association. Previously, she was the co-executive director of Power Shift Network, a Washington, D.C.-based climate justice organization where she led communications and fundraising programs. She currently serves as the board president of the Common Good Generation, which is committed to justice by organizing toward possibilities where those more impacted by structural inequalities are centered. She's also vice president, currently interim president of Our Climate, which empowers young people to advocate for climate justice policies that build a thriving world by engaging and training young people from affected communities and groups to participate in broad and diverse advocacy coalitions. Thanks for hanging out with me. Thank you so much for having me, Anthony. I'm so excited to be here today. You know, I'm I'm curious. Your entire professional career, you have been involved in social justice. And so I'm wondering what sparked that interest. Is this a childhood development? What got you to this point where it's about social justice? I think it's about social justice and equal access. I think those are the things that have driven me because I was in healthcare nonprofit for a long time. Um, and really what uh, brought me to that is my... <laughs> my first job out of college, working for the phone company in a call center. It was the worst. Um, you know, I, I met lovely people there. I think I treated the customers well. It was a good experience. I learned sales, which, you know, gave me a springboard to jump into to some other things. But I did not mm -hmm. want to work for corporate interests. And I think it really solidified that I wanted to leave the world a better place than I found it. So I was really committed at that point. Once I left that uh, that avenue, I, I was mostly committed to working for nonprofit uh, organizations to, to make the world a better place. Oh, fantastic. I heard you say in an um, interview that uh, the first time you heard of humanism was a few years ago, mm -hmm. but it seems like something about humanism captures your philosophy of life. Could you tell me a bit about your philosophy of life, how it developed and how you reach your current state of free thought? I think when I was a kid, I, I one thing I'm really good at is loving people. Um, and I always said to myself, if I could work in a job and like just love on people, give people love and make them feel comfort and, and, and joy and satisfaction, then that's what I would do. And that's what the way I see this work. I see this work is really standing and rooted in love, uh, to, to affect change because there's a, there's a tide right now and, it, and we need to ride that time. We need to get on our surfboards and like ride the wave. Um, <laughs> but there, there's, a, there's such a need. I think we've come to the clear end of unfettered capitalism. Um, you know, that is just greedy, rapacious, unyielding, unwieldy, unseemly, unkind. Uh, and people are tired of it. And in this moment, I think humanism is the place where we can stand in that literally looking to alleviate the suffering of people. And nobody can do that better. Not the government, not our politicians, as much as we, you know, need them to codify good policy. Who will save us will be us. The last couple of years in COVID showed us that when we need one another, we show up. 
it didn't feel like that going in. I think I felt dread going into COVID. And I was like, oh my gosh, people are going to, you know, <laughs> they're going to eat each other alive in their <laughs> homes. And, you know, people are going to, you know, take to the streets. And I think I saw something totally different and it really renewed my faith in people. coming to the AHA and coming to this place where I, you know, have always unknowingly, uh, you know, identified as a humanist, very unknowingly. I didn't know, I didn't know that that's what it was called. But now coming into this place where, you know, all of the professional skills that I have, all of the places that I've organized and I've, I've worked and my passion for like resourcing and supporting young people, I can put it to good use in one place. And right now what we need is we really need policy and and action that's rooted in love. And I get to do that. I get to stand in my purpose. And it's the first time in a very, very long time that I felt this way. I I think you're very generous in in terms of the humanist community. I I think there are a whole (laughs) lot of folks who are about the business who can get with what you're saying. But it seems to me there are also those for whom they, they have a rather narrow sense of what justice entails Uh, They have a narrow sense of compassion. So I've heard more than once with respect to black Christians. Look, if they want to believe that stuff, they deserve what happens to them. Right. I don't hear the love in that. So I I, I get how we do this in terms of the like minded. But what do we do with those within humanist circles for whom this sort of approach, this kind of expansive sense of access and justice is a Mm -hmm. challenge? So I want to I want to push back a little bit on that first point that you made, particularly with regard to like the black church, which we know um, is is toxic. And, and it's I think it's for that reason that we that some of us throw our hands up because you cannot argue with people who are brainwashed. You cannot argue with them until they're ready to open their eyes and open up their hearts and continue to ask questions beyond, you know, beyond their cognitive dissonance. It's like hitting your head on the wall and it's exa- it's tiring. It's demoralizing. I think we can invite people into the space who are religious and who who may very well be humanist unbeknownst to them. Um, I think a lot of people who are spiritual or religious feel the same way. I've, I've talked with a friend of mine and she was like, I don't know if I can, you know, organize with you. And I'm like, why aren't you a good person? Don't you like people? <laughs> don't you care about the condition of people? Don't you believe in science? You're a scientist. You don't believe in science. You, you don't want better for people. Of course I do. Well, then you're a humanist. Hello. Welcome to the movement. We all, we know what we know. They know what they know. There's no space for that, but how are we serving together? And that is the opportunity that we have. And I think that's some of the shallowness, not just in the black church, but in the church in general that we see is that there's some shat, not some, there's shallowness in that it's a lot of prosperity gospel. It's a lot of uh, pontificating and self-righteousness and looking down the nose. There's not a whole lot of service. And even members I've heard, you know, when they're late on their rent or they need money for the utility, the church is like, well, you didn't pay tithes in the last couple of months, or, you know, you're not a, you know, 20% tither, so we can't give you anything. Or we don't see them opening their doors when it's cold for people to sleep inside the church or opening their kitchens to feed people. There are plenty of organizations and plenty of churches that do do that work. Um, but we don't see a lot of that. So can we serve together? And and we can if it's many hands make light work. And if we're working the way that we need to and as diligently as we need to, we can simply appreciate that human experience together. And I think that's kind of how we that's the build that we bridge between us and them. But it's, it is difficult to be around people who are toxic to you. 
because we are, you know, uh, unfortunately, particularly for us, for black folks and throughout the diaspora, religion is the anchor of families. And when you walk away from that, and when you literally say, I don't believe in God anymore, there's like, oh my gosh, you're a terrible person. Uh, it's really hard to be around those people. So I think people need to protect their peace. I mean, people in our movement, if you need to protect your peace, if you need to divorce yourself from those communities until you're in a better place when you're, uh, you know, when you have gotten out of acute trauma from being in the church, and then you can probably go back and work with those people. But I would never recommend that because it's not healthy. I mean, I don't tell people to stick by their parents if their parents are still horrible people. Like, it's all right. Grow up and go do your own thing and y'all will come around together. But we don't need to immerse ourselves in toxicity. Uh, just to make a point or just, you know, for movement's sake. I, I would agree with you, but let's uh, stay here for just a minute because it's important. Mm -hmm. It's complex, though, right? Because yeah. as a fellow humanist, I would agree with you in terms of what often takes place within Christian circles, but it doesn't capture a Raphael Warnock or a Freddie Haynes or a Vashti McKenzie, right? So there are those within the context of Christianity are trying to rethink it. And, and so I, I guess one of the questions for me is, how do we as humanists decipher these differences and develop solidarity with those who are committed to the same issues of justice and access mm -hmm. while also being critical of members of their larger organization, the Black church who aren't? And, and kind of added to that, I'm with you on this issue of toxicity and moving away from it. But even Black Christians who are ass backwards, do they deserve the injustice they encounter? Oh, no. You pointed out great people. <laughs> William Barber, Reverend William Barber, another, you know, poor people's campaign. Like, you know, if, if again, that's the work, that's the serving. We can do that together. But whether they want to work with us is a whole different <laughs> it's a whole different situation because mm -hmm. I say it all the time. I think people think that we like murder chickens and babies in our backyards. I don't know what they think of those, those of us that are godless. Um, and I don't know that they think that we're, we're good people. And, but that's where conversation and breaking bread and, yeah, you know, yeah, sitting down yeah. and having conversations and finding those commonalities together. Um, I think around the world, people of the global majority, which is all brown and black people, we, we have more in common, even with white people, you know, mm -hmm, we have more in common mm -hmm. than we do different. And I think it's really, we need to lean into those similarities. It doesn't matter how we get there. I, I believe in decentralized networks. Uh, it doesn't matter how we get there. Mm -hmm, it doesn't matter mm -hmm. if like one movement is running, one movement is on skates, one is on a speedboat. It, mm -hmm, <laughs> some folks mm -hmm. are crawling. It doesn't matter how we get there. We can use different tactics to get to equity, yeah. to get to actual justice. Yeah. We can get there together. Uh, we may get there at different times and we may do it in different ways, but we have to be, we, we have got to learn to be in a place of respect. And it is really difficult again, you know, when you're dealing with people who particularly are folks who are mm -hmm. dealing with acute trauma from yeah. being in the church. I yeah. mean, it is yeah. traumatizing. Yeah. It's real, real hard to dig deep and find compassion for people who continue to allow themselves to be, you know, to continually be in, in a position of abuse. If something's horrible, it's horrible. Right. Like, you know, we can we can agree on that and, and, and take action against that together. So you've talked in terms of, of love, but what are some of the other values that you think are inherent to humanism that we ought to be communicating to the larger public? 
Mm. Um, I think empathy is something that I'm seeing in short supply, even in our own movement, mm-hmm. um, which has been a bit disappointing. Honestly, I've I've been um, I've been in meetings with people who have been in our who have led our movement for decades, um, probably even decades before I was born, and have used language like woke and social justice warrior, and you know it's too woke, it's too progressive, and I'm like, when do we stop <laughs> wanting to be progressive? Like that's the point of progress is to progress. (laughs) We don't want to move on. No, we don't want to grow. But our kids are like, we deserve better. Our children, our children's children deserve better. In sales training, that horrible job that I had, uh, one of the most important things that I learned is when to walk away. Mm. And that ain't easy. It's real hard, but you you can press a sale so many times, but at some point you have to be like, you know what, my this opportunity cost, this is not worth it. You are <laughs> making me sweat. I'm uncomfortable. This is not working. So thank you. Have a great day. Take care of yourself. And you move on. And I'm in that place with some folks in our movement who, you know, who may not necessarily have the energy. And I recognize that it may simply be a matter of like energy and, you know, not having the capacity to learn something else. I think we, you know, as we get older, we get, you know, get a little bit rigid. You know, you and I both can probably talk about how how our knees don't <laughs> work right anymore. I- um, but I think we, you know, our, we can get rigid in our thinking and rigid in our acceptance of new and different ideas. But I think if this movement is going to survive, we cannot be that. We have to be flexible and limber and agile. There, there are a lot of people who are not able to uh, come along. They're not able to come along because they just don't have it in them. And it's okay. There's room for them to do something in the movement. And, and maybe it's simply to pass on knowledge. disappointing at times but you know i think people i i want our movement to be welcoming to people um not feel welcoming but be welcoming to people and that means everyone um even those people that are kind of like mm, get off my lawn you know <laughs> even, even those folks uh, but you know the lawn is not for them it doesn't belong to them it the earth belongs to everyone and you know the the idea of propriety and professionalism and We've got to decolonize the way that we think about movements uh, and how we think about uh, our place in them, everyone's place in them. Um, I, you know, I'm here to upend all of that uh, proudly, <laughs> excitedly, happily. Um, there's a lot of change that's coming and people are not going to be okay with it. If we're, again, standing in love, you know, in compassion and respect for folks um, with empathy, understanding other people's condition, um, even though it doesn't apply to us, I'm, you know, I'm a cis het woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, you know, but I feel the deepest compassion for LGBTQIA plus mm-hmm. folk. Um, I feel deep compassion for people who are working. I'm a single mother, um, you know, like, but there are conditions that do not apply to me that I feel deep compassion for. <laughs> it doesn't matter how you got there. I don't, it's not my job to stand in judgment. That's why we left the church is to st- step out of judgment. My job is not to judge you. My job is to help make your life better it's that empathy. It's the empathy that I think is missing from some of our, our, you know, our seasoned crowd. Uh, I just don't think they can wrap their heads around the current condition and how free people are, but that's the point. We want to be liberated. And I'm with you in terms of where the movement needs to go. I'm wondering if getting there requires some significant changes to our infrastructure and our models of Mm -hmm. leadership. And if that is the case, what kind of 
changes need to happen. I think there are some severe structural changes that need to happen in our movement. Um, and I'm thinking about them. I'm thinking about what they can look like. Um, I, and I don't know, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I'm, I'm just getting to the place where I'm able to start looking at our chapters and our members and how we engage with one another, our partnerships, mm-hmm. uh, which are so incredibly key and how we're investing in young people. Um, you know, I, I feel you, you were in my interview process. I, you know, I feel very supported in knowing that nobody expects mm-hmm. me to snap my fingers. And, you know, by the end of this year, we're going to have 5,000 new young people in our movement. That's not going to happen. It's not, it's absolutely not going to happen because it's going to take time to plant those seeds and water them and give them enough sun and space and replant them in other places for them to grow. It's going to take a while before it bears fruit, uh, but we have to do that right now. And, and I think traditionally our, our movement has not necessarily done that. There are some structural changes. Part of that is uh, youth leadership development needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Talking with the board, you know, and I, and when I say board, I mean all of our boards, <laughs> the many boards right, we right. have. Um, I think it would be, I think it would be lovely for our boards to continually reserve a space for young people, a young person on, on the board. Um, I've been on boards with young people. Um, and they're, while they're good and kind people, they, they don't know how to work a board. That's something we have to teach. We, we have to teach them how to steward organizations. Um, we have to teach them what leadership looks like, but they are sitting in a real, such an uncomfortable position. That many generations have never have not known for many years. I just think they have an awareness that the rest of us don't. But yes, there are some structural issues that that need to change. Um, but that again, that is a lot of that. In my opinion, for right now, my focus is going to be working on cultivating um, a really, really dynamic group of young folks. Um, so I'm working pretty closely with the Student Secular Alliance, um, working with some humanist chaplains in our uh, on campus, okay. campus humanist chaplains um, on various campuses. I'm chatting with Greg, Greg Epstein. I talk to Anthony, mm-hmm. you know, Anthony um, Cruz quite often. Um, it's my buddy. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, you know, it's building those bridges with young people. Um, I didn't realize SSA even has chapters in like middle school, middle school. I was like, Oh, be still my heart. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, I, I, that's fantastic. And that's where we need to be. So anywhere SSA is AHA needs to be there. We need to be there together and not in an extractive way. We don't need to be asking the kids to do anything, but how are we investing in them? Well, how, you know, how are we helping them with programming, with support? What kind of financial support are we, are we, you know, helping them with? Um, we need to draw stronger lines between SSA and AHA, because when the kids leave high school and they go off to college, they're going to organize with SSA. But like, what if they're traveling and they get in trouble or something happens or they just want to like, you know, hang out with good people or invite good people to do a good thing. They can reach out to an AHA chapter and they need to know that, but they don't know that right now because we never cultivated that relationship in that way. And we also need to really address the the absence of black and brown people in leadership positions Mm -hmm. um, in this movement. So it seems to me fairly obvious what humanists get wrong in terms of social justice, but what are humanists getting right? Honestly, there are a few things that I think humanists are getting right as far as social justice goes. I think we all recognize um, how preserving like First Amendment rights uh, in keeping church-state separation benefits everyone. And I think those are those are absolutely, you know, they're absolutely justice issues. 
you know, we, we, we shouldn't be in places and be put upon <laughs> by, by the church. Mm-hmm. So I think we've, we've traditionally gotten that right. I think we're, we're really strong okay. advocates of, of, you know, first amendment and church and state church, church state separation issues. We've done that very well. I think lobbying around uh, abortion rights, uh, you know, the right for people to, okay. you know, femmes, women, and people assigned female at birth have, you know, to work with their medical team to decide whether or not that's right for them. Uh, and it's necessary. It's, you know, government shouldn't be in that at all. Um, so there, there are some places that we, we've gotten right, you know, re- reproductive justice, uh, you know, first amendment rights, church state separation. Um, I think we we're pretty, we're pretty good there. Um, voting rights is another, uh, we can see the voting rights eroding. I mean, thank Audrey Lord for uh, Stacey Abrams and the crew in Georgia, um, mm-hmm. because you know what they did in Georgia was just beyond impressive, um, and and those are very very broad issues that affect everyone. I think there are some places where we have a lot of work to do, but in those places we've gotten that very right, um, and there may be other places that again I'm still learning. Uh, so there, there may be some other issue areas. So please don't come for me, y'all. Uh, if I didn't say your <laughs> issue, but um, there, you know, I, I think we've done those things really, really well, and we'll, we'll continue to do them well. I'm with you on this. I think you are on point. One last question for you. Uh, at one point, you said every single issue within the social justice framework is a humanist issue. I'm with you on that. I think that is spot on. But I'm wondering. We have limited resource. Mm-hmm. How do we prioritize in light of that fact? I think leaning in on climate justice, which is a threat multiplier, it, it exacerbates every undergirding systemic oppression. Um, we've got to get climate under control. We gotta, like we, we've got to stop fossil fuel subsidies. We've got to stop pipelines. They're polluting our water, our air, our soil. Um, you know, I live in Baltimore City. Our air is dirty. I can't plant a doggone thing, uh, you know, in my back, in my backyard because mm-hmm. the soil is filthy. Um, there's, and I don't live, you know, in walking distance to a grocery store. So like, what do people do? Um, you know, it's a food justice issue. There's so many things that, you know, climate, I don't want to use the word intersects, but literally, you know, it, it really does. It, it layers upon everything else. So I think that's probably the first thing. Uh, the other, I think is we really, really need to talk about the, and I'm using air quotes, y'all justice system. <laughs> it's not, it's not just, and it's not right. It, it is a whole, uh, like it's a whole ass holdover from slavery. Mm-hmm. I mean, when mm-hmm. we're talking about the the police, we're talking about the carceral system, we're talking about our prison system that treats people inhumanely, um, and then expects them to come out and not reoffend. Like, OMG, you give them no support. They get no real training. They get like they they work in the prisons for these companies, and then when they leave the prison, they're done with serving their sentence. They can't get hired by those same companies because they did it for slave labor in, in behind behind prison walls. It, it's absolutely it is insane that we expect something different to happen. Um, but like it, it it's a human rights issue, but it's also a safety issue for those folks, for their families, and for us and our families. I mean, even. Even if we only approach it from like a selfish standpoint, you know, nobody's going to be looking in my window if they have their own house and their own food on their own table. They're going to be busy living Mm -hmm. a good life. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be looking in my window. So like, but we're so afraid of folks when they leave. There's a whole, so the justice system is probably the other thing that we really need to look at. We need to have some real conversations about that because in within that house, within that we, you and I both know is racial justice. 
uh, part and parcel. Um, you know, we, they start criminalizing our black boys and girls around age, uh, the fourth grade or so. Uh, see Dr. Jawanza Kanjuhu for, uh, reference, <coughs> wrote many books about that, but, um, racial justice, economic justice is, is housed within that. Um, they, they simply want a, a prison pipeline. They want prisoners. They don't want productive members of, of society. They don't want us to be productive members of society, black people. Um, so saying that the, I think the carceral system in general, starting with the police ending with like, you know, our prisons where people end up, um, and the supports that are out there for people when they come out. Um, that's something that I is, I think is important. Um, there's so many things to go and see. <laughs> so many things. Um, gosh. And I think another thing that we really need to address that I think people don't think about, and which is, it really bothers me, is uh, disability justice. People mm. don't think about that enough. We're a really ableist, a shitty ableist society. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. Again, you know, people don't think about disabled people who sit in the margins of every, there are disabled people in every demographic. Like there is, there is intersectionality for them. There's intersectionality for, you know, as there is for everyone else, but they're so invisible. Uh, they're made to be invisible in every, every mm -hmm. place that mm -hmm. they sit. Uh, and we've got to do a better job of that. And we have to lead as humanists to ensure that our spaces are not ableist spaces and the things that we say and do are not ableist. Um, and that is something that I, you know, I, I work, I have to work on because it's, again, I'm a part of the society that, you know, I don't, I didn't even think about it until it was raised. And I was like, Oh, geez, look at, you know, I didn't even think about this. I don't even think about this kind of thing. And I think there are a lot of people in our movement who don't think about those things either. So I think disability justice is probably another I would like to see. But again, that may change <laughs> next week when our staff are done chopping up over the over the staff retreat. I lied. That wasn't the last question. You got <laughs> you got my mind racing. So I, I have to ask one more. Mm -hmm. So what can the humanist movement learn from the movement for black lives? What should we be taking out of their playbook? Oh. Man, so many things. Oh, there's so much. Uh, <laughs> stop gaslighting us, uh, you know, and accept accountability for the fact that racism was not created by us. It was not created by black and brown people. Uh, I don't think our indigenous brothers and sisters uh, started any of that. You know, when the white folks came to this to, to Turtle Island, they were fed and they were clothed and they were, you know, they were given fire to, to stay warm. Uh, we're, we are hospitable people, <laughs> all of us, black and brown people. We're hospitable people. We didn't start racism. It is not for us to fix. And we've been telling people since reconstruction, I mean, clearly coming out of slavery. I mean, hello, like, it, you know, it, it, crimes against humanity, period. Um, but when black people, particularly in this country, tried to really took advantage of the, 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 the opportunities in reconstruction and thrived public office, university, doctor's offices, colleges and universities, local schools, the whole nine yards. We were everywhere. We were doing the thing and they couldn't stand it. And that's when Jim Crow came around. It didn't slavery still is here in our prison systems. Let's not discount that. So when we are saying that black lives matter, we mean, please organize with us and call your white cousins out on their bullshit. It is not for us to do. 
we have got to, we got to save one another. We got to, we, we are literally in a constant state of panic. We do not have the energy for it. We're trying to just get by. But until white people call out these, 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 these violent, oppressive systems that they created that are codified in our constitution, the first iteration mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. not the amendments, the constitution, this country, they oh, it's so broken. It is not broken. It is working exactly as they intended it to call it out, call it out. Mm-hmm. Do we need to mm-hmm. write a new one? Maybe we do. Maybe we do. Maybe we need to write a new constitution because the first one was broken um, in, in its thinking in general, but they white folks need to organize themselves and they need to call out their BS uh, on Facebook. There's a group called white nonsense roundup. I love them. You can tag them when somebody's on some bullshit and they'll come in and, and clean up the, the white people mess. And we're like, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate you so that we can continue to have productive conversations. We need to work on our own solutions for ourselves. We recognize we got to get our stuff together as a community too. We do. We're not saying that we don't have problems, but we cannot fight you and fight this at the same time either. We have to figure out our own solutions. So how can we, we can seize back our agency but we can't do it if we're fighting, you know, the battles that you created. So, yeah, BLM is, is it is it's really about that is about calling white people to the carpet for them to fix their mess and respecting and acknowledging that we have been continually put upon daily in this country. It's not like and I say this as a West Indian woman, my family, like <laughs> I heard my uncle say it best. We got to kick out our oppressors. And I was like, we sure did. <laughs> That has never happened here. The the boot has continually been on the neck of Black Americans and has never let up. When are we going to? What we as all of us? When are we going to get some relief? When are we going to get reparations? When are we going to get relief? It needs to happen. And so there there it's that people need to get angry. White people, particularly in our movement, need to get angry with us. And then they need to take the ball and run with it and go clean it up so that we can work on solutions and get ourselves together and have a little rest. I mean, I want some tea and crumpets too. Like <laughs> I wanna put my foot up at some point, but you know. But that's that's I think that's what what can come from that is understanding that the you know racism in in this culture is not ours it, it it we didn't make it so it's not ours to fix. So you speak in truth. That's a drop the mic moment. I will do that if I had a mic. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, that is our time. I'm Anthony Penn. You've been listening to Nadia Dutchin, Executive Director of American Humanist Association. Thanks for coming and hanging out with me. Thank you so much, Tony. It's so good to see you again. The Pin Drop Podcast with Anthony Pin is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media. Thanks for listening. See you next time for Pin Drop.